Well, good morning. Um, good morning. <laughs> um, my name is Zach. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I'm the associate minister here. Uh, and relatively speaking, we have been uh, cruising through the Gospel of John. Uh, of course, this only happens by making leaps and bounds over large blocks of the book. And those leaps and bounds have been organized, they've been focused uh, on specific statements made by Jesus and recorded by John, uh, statements that take the form, truly, truly, I say to you. So last week we found ourselves in John 10, and this morning we will consider John 12. Uh, but before we go any further... Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time to gather here together um, under your word, whether it is through the announcements or through singing, through communion, through prayer, through preaching. Um, God, help us to be shaped and formed uh, by your word. Uh, I, I pray that it would bear witness to your son and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be made more like him. God, I pray this morning that you would free us from distractions, help our hearts and our minds be tuned to you. Help me speak clearly um, that you might be known, that we might make your name great, that it would be obvious and clear why we are here uh, as we gather quite literally under a cross hanging over our heads. God, help us remember who we are and why we are who we are, uh, and help us to uh, praise you um, through communion, through praying, through singing, and through the attention we give to what you have to say. Father, I pray for uh, just the, the different needs and places that we're coming from as we enter this building. As we come here, help us to bring those things to you, knowing that you are a loving Father who cares for us and meets our needs. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to go ahead and look at John 12, and we're going to begin with verse 23 through 28. We're just going to jump right to the truly, truly statement. So it goes like this. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour Father, glorify your name. There is much to unpack here, and I hope to have done it by the end of my sermon this morning. But on its face, this truly, truly statement rehearses a well-known, a rather well-known Christian idea. You must die in order to live. We find this same sentiment Across the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus telling us that we must lose our lives in order to save them. And that might sound obvious to you. Well, maybe you're, you've been around the church for a while, but I'm talking specifically about 
all the Gospels containing the same story, but it's not obvious because they don't. There are only a handful of stories and statements that are included in all four Gospels. Some people take this as a cause for concern. If the stories don't line up, can we really trust them? Of course. If everyone in here this morning were to write a story of what happened here just this morning, fairly simple story, they would all be different. But they would all line up on certain things. We would agree on who spoke. We would agree on who sang. We would agree on who was here and what we read. And the places we disagreed were probably because you weren't paying attention. Those places that those, our stories line up would help paint a picture of what was central to our morning. So it is no small thing that all four Gospels Record this idea, losing your life in order to save it. And the rest of the New Testament bears witness to the importance of this idea. Losing your life is not always front and center. It's not all, all that everyone talks about, but the, the engine of self-denial is unmistakably humming in the background. So consequently, there is lots, lots that could be said about losing your life in order to save it. You might even argue that the entire New Testament, if not all of Scripture, is a tool to help us understand how to do this. But it's important when we read Scripture that we read it on its own terms. If we want to understand God's Word, then we can't immediately bring our own ideas And our own questions to it. We can't answer the question, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for us? Until we know, what does this mean? We we don't know what kinds of questions to ask until we know what kinds of questions John, specifically, is trying to answer. Now, this has been mentioned before, and it will probably continue to be mentioned. But in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he gives us his plain Purpose, And this does not happen in every book of the Bible, which is at least part of why I enjoy it and appreciate it so much. He plainly says that he wants us as readers and listeners and receivers of these words to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to have life in his name. So how does John 12, 23 through 28 serve John's purpose? How does it establish and strengthen belief in those who hear it? I think these six verses, they tell us part of what to believe. We must believe that it is necessary to die if we wish to live. But John also will tell us why and how to believe. Beginning with John 11, it's possible to see John working back and forth between the why, the how, and the what of belief in Christ. So looking broadly at John 11, we can see that Jesus demonstrates his authority before he makes any commands. He has power over life and death, which is yet one more reason, assuming you have been working through John like we have, this is one more reason why you should believe. So in John 11, we are immediately introduced to Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany is a a suburb, essentially, of Jerusalem. And Lazarus is sick. 
Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, who send for Jesus, knowing that Jesus has the power to heal their brother. And when Jesus hears this news that Lazarus is sick, he says, this illness does not lead to death. That's good. It is for the glory of God. Also good. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All good. But it continues. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now I I don't know about you. (laughs) That's not what I expect to read here. Uh, Jesus taking an extra two days seems like the opposite of love. No good doctor would wait two days to give life-saving treatment that's easily available. But we have to remember that God's ways are not our ways. And that it's a foolish thing to judge God's actions from our tiny, creaturely perspective. But that also doesn't mean these kinds of things aren't hard. Because when Jesus arrives in Bethany, things are indeed According to John eleven seventeen, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. People had come to grieve and to comfort Lazarus's family. And one gets the sense from John 11 that Mary and Martha, while hopeful, undoubtedly hopeful, were nonetheless heartbroken over the death of their brother. And much more could and should be said about the story of Lazarus. But for our purposes this morning, we we have to skip ahead. Jesus comes to the tomb. He commands the stone to be rolled away. And after praying out loud to the Father, he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Now, on its own, this is an incredible story. In the truest sense of the word, it is hard to believe It is unbelievable because, of course, we know that people who have been dead for four days stay dead. And so the thinking goes that the only reason these people believed any of this is because they were gullible. They just they didn't know any better. But, of course, that's silly. That's foolish. We're not so smart that we know people stay dead and they didn't. The whole story rests on its extraordinary nature. Nobody expected Jesus to go to the tomb and raise Lazarus from the dead. And after four days at that, this kind of thing was unheard of, which is why, skipping ahead into John 12, John 12, 10, we read that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because this wasn't normal. This was completely unusual. And Lazarus himself was scandalous evidence of the power and work of Jesus. But before we go any further back into 12, we need to take another step backwards. Because John 11 further develops what has been written in John 10. If you look at John 10, verses 2 and 3, and Ben preached on this last week, but it says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, if you look again at John 11, 43 and 44... Jesus calls Lazarus by name and leads him out. In the story of Lazarus, we see the good shepherd caring for the sheep. And we see the sheep responding to the good shepherd. So building upon John 10, John 11 tells us why to believe. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. That is why you believe. And building from John 11 into John 12, we will see another reason why to believe. And it's that Jesus has power and authority over life and death. Now, one of the lessons that we should take away from John is that faith is not blind. God has given us reasons to believe. Jesus has shown up and performed signs that testify that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in whom we have life. Faith is sometimes referred to as a blind leap or a blind jump. But that's, that's wrong. It's not blind. Faith is a jump. It is a leap. But it is jumping with eyes wide open into the arms of a loving father, a good shepherd, one who mercifully and generously wields the power over life and death. So if we are to live by dying, as John 12 says, then here is why. Because even in death, we are not dead if we are in Christ. In John 11:25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Christ, death is not the end. In fact, I, I don't think Jesus ever refers to Lazarus as dead. He just says he's sleeping. See, we can and we should trust in Jesus because he himself provides what he commands. When he says you must die, he knows he has the power to make you live. But knowing what and knowing why are not enough. I can know what driving is. I can know why I should drive. But if I don't know how to drive, I'm getting nowhere fast. That's good for nobody. Similarly, we can know what Jesus commands. In this instance, we can know that he is telling us to lose our lives in order to find them. We can know why we should obey. We can know that he is the good shepherd, that he has power over life and death. But if we don't know how, then we are missing an important piece of the puzzle. And here's where we turn to John 12 again. And John gives us a how. Beginning in verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, in, in case you had somehow forgotten. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So first of all, a denarii was roughly equivalent to a day's wages. So a perfume that cost 300 denarii was a perfume that cost roughly a whole year's worth of labor when you subtract Sabbaths and holidays. So it's possible, I mean, this is very obviously expensive, very expensive. It's even possible that this perfume was a, an inheritance. It was her life savings. 
Whatever you think of this act and, and however much value we give to it, right, it's very, very clear, if nothing else, that Mary intended this as an extraordinary act of praise and honor. So are we to conclude then that to authentically follow Jesus, to lose our lives for his sake, we must bring him extraordinary gifts, whether that be our time, our talents, or our treasure? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Have you ever known someone that gives gifts in a way just to bring attention to themselves? They bring the biggest, fanciest, most expensive gifts to show everyone how big, fancy, successful, and important they are. Maybe you sometimes find yourself tempted in that same direction. That is not at all what Mary is doing here. And how do we know? Because she falls down at Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. That's not a power move. That is not someone bringing attention to themselves. It would have been downright shameful, if not scandalous. Not to mention reckless. Judas doesn't let us forget that this was a reckless thing she was doing. Judas scorns her for her wasteful little episode of enthusiasm. And as hard as it can be to give Judas any credit, and as reluctant as we can be, he has a fair point. When it comes to finances, one can and should consider how they can best be put to use. And ironically enough, we have talked much about our budget that is being planned later today for 2022. But Judas doesn't act with pure intentions. We're tipped off that Judas will soon betray Jesus. And not only that, but he is already a thief. Judas is among Jesus and his disciples, but he isn't with them. He stands as an enemy as one in darkness, hating the light. Judas's contempt, his hatred, his frustration with Mary is purely selfish. The righteous act of Mary has affected his ability to line his own pockets. So it's not just that Mary offered Jesus an extraordinary gift. It's that she was more concerned with honoring Jesus than maintaining her own dignity. Just like there is a way to give gifts that is still all about you, there is a way to serve Jesus that is still all about you. If your walk with Christ is most concerned with how others see you, you haven't yet lost your life for the sake of following him. If you aren't willing to wipe some feet, take out some trash, clean some toilets, serve in places where no one will ever see you but God, if what you want is recognition, then you are probably struggling with losing your life. If you aren't willing to be criticized for the God you worship, if you aren't willing for your reputation to suffer for the sake of following Jesus, if you prefer credibility with those who hate God rather than credibility with the God you claim to love, then you need to continue to do the work of losing your life. We should, indeed we must, we must bring our time, talents, and treasures to Jesus. Because Jesus wants our hearts. He wants all of who we are. And who we are is reflected and projected into those things. Who we are is seen in our time, our talents, and our treasures. 
Dying to ourselves then is not giving up on our personalities and the things that make each one of us unique. Instead, it's taking what makes you uniquely you and using it for the honor of God rather than yourself. Whether you are into cars or crochet or you are the strange bird who is into both, you don't have to give those things up to authentically follow Jesus. But you do have to give up the approval of others if it comes in the way of approval from Christ. And the reality is people will hate what you do for Jesus. They will hate that you follow Jesus. Not everyone, of course. Plenty of people in Scripture didn't believe in Jesus, not because they hated him, not because they wished him ill, but because they simply didn't understand. And not everything will be hated either. Plenty of people loved Jesus when he filled their bellies, when he healed their sick, but when he began to make demands of people, when he began to challenge them, when he began to question their systems of honor and prestige and power, when he stood before them and called sin, sin, no matter how socially acceptable that sin had become, people plotted to kill him. So don't be surprised when Judas ridicules Mary. Don't be surprised when those in darkness hate the light. How we lose our lives is by willfully suffering dishonor for Jesus' sake. We consider faithfulness to him more valuable than even our own reputations and well-being. It's not that the life of the Christian is one of perpetual suffering. We are not duty-bound as Christians to always choose the path of pain and the path of most resistance. But when faced with the choice between man and God, the choice should be obvious. We must choose what we have with Christ, what we have with God, rather than what we might have in the terms of Ecclesiastes here under the sun. And sometimes that might look like breaking the ointment on Jesus' feet. And other times that might look like selling the ointment and giving the money to the poor. It's not that the act in and of itself is right, but the heart. If your actions are a spotlight, who do they shine on? In John 3, John the Baptist puts it well. He says, he must increase but I must decrease. Of course, the increasing of Jesus Christ is crucifixion. Jesus came and proved he was God by living a life full of signs and wonders. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't the point of his coming into the world. John twelve forty seven says that he came into the world to save it, as does John three seventeen. Now, as nice as it is to get a loaf of bread... And even nicer to have your sick and hurting healed and restored. These things are not salvation. While his signs, while Jesus' works are true glimpses and flashes of light into the darkness, the Son of God hanging on the cross shines brighter than the sun. Jesus himself was fully aware of this. John twelve twenty seven says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jumping down to verses 32 and 33, he continues, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knows that he will be crucified. And the troubled state of his soul shows that he knows the agony he will experience when he is lifted up on the cross. But he also knows that the cross is for glory. And that through the work of the cross, he will gather those who believe. Now here in John, we find reference to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In verses 38 through 41, explicit mention is made of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. What's less obvious, but in my opinion no less important, is an inconspicuous reference to the end of Isaiah 52 by Jesus in the words we just read. It says, Isaiah 52:13 says, and see if this sounds familiar at all. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. It's possible, of course, that this is a coincidence, uh, but given John's usage of Isaiah and Jesus having already quoted from Scripture in verse 27, a reference to Psalm 6, it's extremely likely that this is more than a happy accident. Both meanings of being lifted up are meant to be at play here. Yes, Jesus will be lifted up in death on the cross. But in the very same act, he is being exalted. Jesus' death on the cross secures the kingdom. It is on the cross that Christ conquers the powers of darkness and ascends his throne as ruler over all of creation. John 12:26 says this. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If we are going to serve Jesus, if we are going to make our lives about his increase and our decrease, then we must follow him. And if we follow him, we must follow him. We will go where he goes. And where did Jesus go? To the cross. We can and we must and we will suffer shame, humiliation, and loss to serve a crucified Savior who himself suffered shame, humiliation, and loss. But look again at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we follow Christ and we follow him to the cross and we follow him to dishonor and shame with the world, we will also follow him to honor from our heavenly Father as well. As John 12 comes to a close, John gives something of a summary of the responses of people to Jesus so far through the gospel. There are some who believed, but many more who did not. And as he's making these, these assertions, he's quoting from Isaiah to describe their unbelief. And then in verses 42 and 43, it says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Are these people 
who are loving their lives and losing them or losing their lives or losing, excuse me, or hating their lives and finding them. These people who are loving their lives and losing them or hating their lives and finding them. And which kind of person are you? Do you love the glory that comes from man or the glory that comes from God? It's clear. It's clear which is right. Which is true of you? As you think on that question, don't think about yourself for too long. Look instead to Jesus. See how and why the honor that comes from God is better than anything that might come from man. Because remember, all of this book, the book of John, is meant to build you up in your faith. Jesus' words are not just a command to be followed, but an encouragement to lift your hearts. When we are told to hate our lives in this world, to live by dying, we should be encouraged knowing that the, pow- knowing that the power of life and death is in Christ's hands. To be a Christian is to belong to the king. But it's also to stand at odds with much of the world. And so it is a life of death. It's carrying a cross, denying oneself, suffering shame, hating life in this world. Not because life is miserable, not because we despise ourselves, but because the love of God for us in Jesus Christ is like a blazing sun in comparison to the flickering candle of light the world tries to hold out. And so we live our lives in that light, dying to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know in this world we will have trials. Some of those things in this world are just the way the world goes and and disaster strike. But Father, uh, as much as we need grace and uh, faith to persevere through those things, help us especially to hold fast to your word, to trust in who you are in those times and places where we have to die to ourselves, where we have to die to our reputations, where we have to suffer honor, suffer dishonor and shame because we are so committed to you. Help us not to look in ourselves for strength. Help us not to look in ourselves for resolve. Help us always to lift our eyes to you, to see the difference between the shining sun and the dim flickering candle to know that one is infinitely better than the other. And God, I pray that you would help us to also make the distinction between suffering shame because we're being foolish and suffering shame because we are being fools for you. Give us the wisdom in that. God, I pray that we as a church would be a place of encouragement for one another uh, as we work through the Gospel of John, as we just live together as a church, that we would be encouraging one another in our faiths, building one another up, knowing that life is hard, that dying is hard, that these things are troubling. Even our Savior himself was troubled. And yet help us again to always lift our eyes to you, knowing where our hope is, knowing that we ought to wait on you and that we will be given strength, that we will be made whole and right. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your Son. 
who came and died and made any of this possible. Thank you for your spirit who works in us, who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to walk these things out. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.